All right. Can, yeah, I can hear myself now. All right. Very good. Well, uh, we are in Philippians chapter 1, and uh, thank you, Sandy, for, for reading the text for us. I have to tell you that this sermon has been especially difficult to write. Uh, they almost always are, but this one addresses a struggle that I felt for most of my adult life, and I felt it more acutely over the last year or couple of years. In this text, as you may have picked up on as uh, it was being read, Paul is wrestling with life and death. And I want to be completely candid with you. This wrestling with the potentiality of impending death on the one hand and the hope that is in Christ is a subject that rarely leaves my mind. And what I mean by that is there's hardly a day that goes by that I'm not thinking about being caught between the impending moment of death and the hope that we have in Christ. And that impacts my thinking constantly. And I don't always mean in a good way. I mean, often, this is my greatest struggle. Frankly, this text both comforts me and it haunts me. So I want you to hear my heart and struggle this morning as we work through this passage. I make no claims to have this figured out, and God forbid that this sermon would come across as some sort of trite platitude of we just need to think positive thoughts because after all, when we die, all will be well, which is true, but it doesn't mean it's so easy to say. The simple fact is that the sort of thing Paul is dealing with here terrifies me. And it may be true that it terrifies some of you. This language, even this passage itself, makes me want to hide and escape. And you might say, well, isn't that odd? And what a weird way to start a sermon. Aren't you a pastor? Shouldn't you have this figured out? And perhaps I should, but unfortunately that's not who I am. And that has not been my life or ministry experience. I, I tell you this in all sincerity, every single funeral I'm involved in makes me feel like the air has been sucked out of the room. And I've done dozens of them at this point, and been part of dozens of them. At times, I despair so deeply over this notion of there is this impending moment when life will end and what comes next that I wonder why we're ever even brought into this world. I have some dark moments around this. So when I say this text has been a struggle, I also want you to know that I believe there is some critical truth about what it means to live in this world and what it means to ultimately face death as humans, which, to my knowledge, every single one of us will be doing. Now, before we begin with the end of verse 18, let me remind you of Paul's situation. Remember, he's in prison. I think he's likely in Rome, but it's equally as plausible to suggest that he's in Ephesus, and it doesn't really make a great deal of difference where you put him for our purposes. What is important is his fate is uncertain. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He doesn't know if he's going to make it to the next day. In fact, we might even say that as it stands for Paul in this text, things don't look good at all. But look what he says at the end of verse 18. The end of verse 18, remember we covered the first part last week, and this week we pick up here at the end of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, 
that's some situation to be rejoicing in. He's in a Roman prison, and he's rejoicing in that. And his intent is to continue rejoicing. Notice he says, I will rejoice. Not I have rejoiced, or I did rejoice before things got bad, but I will continue to do this. Now, why does he say this? It's because he is confident. It's because he has confidence in the Lord. And I really think that is the whole key to this passage. Paul has an unwavering confidence in Jesus Christ. That only comes from, as we will see as we go through the verses, a deep commitment and deep communion with Christ Jesus. It only comes from a life that, as we talked about last week, is singularly focused on the gospel. It only comes from a life that is lived for and in Christ. Look at the connection in verse 19. For, or because, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So here's the basis for his rejoicing. I know, that's his confidence, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. We need to talk about this word deliverance. Often it's the word that's translated salvation, and it's got very broad usage in the Bible. So it can be translated deliverance, as it's done, I think, rightly so here. But the question is, we have really two options, and the question is, is Paul talking about his immediate release from prison, as in his deliverance from prison and death, or, second option, is he talking about his ultimate deliverance when he is redeemed by Christ and ultimately in the future when Christ returns, raised with Christ in a glorified body? Unsurprisingly, commentators, interpreters are divided about which it is, and they debate this at length, spending pages trying to decide which it is. But based on what he says in the next verses, where he's going through this period of, I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't know what's next, and I don't know which I should choose, I'm inclined to think that what he means here is not, my deliverance is my immediate release from prison, but what he means is my ultimate deliverance in Christ. I think that's exactly what he's talking about, that whether in life or in death, he is absolutely and unshakingly secure in Christ. So he's speaking of his ultimate deliverance, even if death comes. But that doesn't mean he's exempt from wrestling through the present moment. He still has to endure prison. He still has to endure the anxiety of the future. He still has to endure the harsh conditions. He still has to go through the next hour and the next day. And so he says two things will ensure his deliverance. Or, maybe I can reframe this, they will ensure that he is faithful till the end. These two things there in the verse are the prayers of the Philippian believers. See, he says, through your prayers... And number two, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So these two things will ensure that Paul is able to be faithful until the end, whether that's in death or in life. So let's talk first about prayer. Why does he say that through your prayers, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance? Does he mean that every prayer will necessarily mean a good outcome in the present circumstances? I don't think so. 
But notice that doesn't mean the prayers are pointless. On the contrary, for Paul, the prayers are essential. They're indispensable. They're necessary. So we can take heart in our prayers. I get discouraged sometimes, as many of you might as well. I've prayed for a whole lot of people in my life who haven't been delivered from present trials. I've prayed fervently for lives to be spared, and those lives were not spared. On the other hand, I've seen the seemingly impossible happen. I've seen God do things that I could have never imagined happening. And I don't think we will ever understand how the Lord allows our prayers to participate within His orchestration of the world. What is clear is that prayer is one means by which God intervenes in our world, and we're invited to engage in that along with God. There's an interesting story about John Wimber. I've, I've always found it interesting because it shows such wisdom. John Wimber was the founder of the Vineyard Movement, which is really a spinoff of the Charismatic Movement uh, and came out in the 80s or 90s. My, my uh, dating's a little fuzzy there. But, but Wimber was one of these guys who apparently legitimately had the ability to heal. Now, I, I don't know what you think of that. We're Baptists. We share all sorts of different views on that. But just entertain the story for a moment and assume that he really had this ability. And so he would actually get in these packed arenas and things like that, and he wouldn't heal everyone, but there were legitimate healings that seemed to happen in his ministry. And yet, in his 60s, Wimber came down with cancer himself that would ultimately take his life. And late in his life, as he's reflecting on this, he's thinking about this and he says, I had to come to realize that it's not for me to determine who the Lord wants to heal and who the Lord doesn't want to heal. The challenge with this for Wimber was he had seen hundreds of people healed under his ministry, and yet his prayers seemed to be ineffective in the present moment. So what Paul is telling us here is that prayer is necessary and it's not pointless, even if it doesn't clear up the situation as we would hope it would. Even if it doesn't fix everything, what we know is that God uses prayer to intervene in our world. The second factor, he says, that will lead to endurance or deliverance is the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Christ, which is a clear reference to the Holy Spirit. Paul says he will receive a supply or a provision or an aid from the Holy Spirit. And I think what he means is this, whatever Paul is lacking for the moment, the Spirit will provide for him. If he needs courage, it will be provided. If he needs endurance, it will be provided. If he needs freedom from fear, it will be provided. The Spirit will enable him to be faithful under the present circumstances. And that provision is explained in the next verse, in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation, see how this connected? As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, here seems to be a good indication that the deliverance that Paul is talking about back in verse 19 isn't just physical deliverance, but it is this ultimate deliverance in Christ. And here, his aim is to be faithful till the end, to be faithful to Christ, whether that's in death or whether that's in life. So the prayers of the saints 
and the aid of the Spirit will ensure that he is faithful so that he will not be ashamed, but instead he will continue to honor Christ no matter what happens to him. We have to remember, Paul isn't some sort of future seer. He doesn't know what's going to happen exactly. He can only make guesses, and we'll see him making confident guesses about that in a moment. But Paul is looking at a situation just like any of us would be looking at it and saying, this doesn't look good, but I'm confident that through your prayers and through the Spirit, I will be able to endure this situation and I will come out having not been ashamed, having not failed, but still glorifying and honoring my Lord. Now before we move on, I want to talk more about Paul's confidence. In verse 19, when he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, he appears to be echoing, whether unintentionally or intentionally, a passage in the book of Job. Now, we're all familiar with Job. Job is that story about a man who is dealt one of the worst hands that life can deal him, and it's all under God's sovereign hand. That's the whole part of Job. And Job wrestles with this along with his friends who give him some really poor advice. But in Job thirteen sixteen, Job says this very thing in almost identical words. This will turn out for my deliverance or salvation. We're no doubt familiar with how this works out for Job. Ultimately, it does turn out for his salvation. The Lord does bless him. And more importantly, he encounters the living God in Job 40 um, in in the whirlwind. He, He encounters the living God. And the whole point of the book of Job is there's really not an answer to human suffering outside of the presence of the living God. By using nearly identical language, though, Paul is expressing confidence in the Lord even if things continue to go poorly for him. Paul is echoing Job in a way that's tapping into the rich history of that story. And it helps us to see Paul's trust in the Lord in this difficult moment. Remember, Paul has immersed himself in the Old Testament scriptures. He knows these stories, and he knows the God of the Old Testament. And here, by saying, this will turn out for my deliverance, we're hearing in the back of our mind Job, and Paul is likely hearing in the back of his mind Job, and expressing the very same confidence that God, the one true God, will deliver him under his circumstances, whatever that looks like, even if it means he dies. Now, returning to verse 20, we see Paul's aim. For Christ to be honored or magnified in life or in death. Now, as always, whether by life or death, I want Christ to be magnified in my life. He talks about that more in verse 21. For, again, a connecting word here, to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I imagine probably 90% of us are familiar with this verse. If you spend any time around the church, you're going to be familiar with this verse. But let's make sure we give it its full impact. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And yes, he said gain. In other words, death is advantageous for the Christian. 
such a statement sort of takes my breath away. I don't know about you, but, but it's one of those things that, that's a bold and big claim. There's a lot riding on this. To die is gain. It's one thing to say to live is Christ, but that, that comes with a whole host of problems. But it's a whole other thing to say to die is gain. And I'm not sure many of us can say that with sincerity and without fear. I certainly can't stand up here and tell you that right now from my perspective. But such is Paul's confidence in the Lord. And we'll see it as we get to Philippians chapter 3, where it's built on him knowing the Lord and his intimacy with the Lord. Again, this is only possible through deep communion with Christ. Notice the order. To live is Christ, that's step one, and only then can the words to die is gain be uttered. He continues to explain this in the following verses, picking up in verse 22. He says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Again, life is all about serving Christ and his church, which is what he means by fruitful labor. And notice Paul is actually conflicted. Which I shall choose, I I can't tell. I don't know which one I would choose. If, if you left it up to Paul, whether or not he would die or live, he's conflicted. I think that's a pretty easy choice for most of us. But not so for Paul. Verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. In other words, I'm, I'm torn apart between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Why, Paul? For that is far better. Again, for me, the choice between life and death is pretty simple. Not so for Paul. It's a difficult decision. He's hard-pressed. He's torn apart by the decision. And even more than that, he actually prefers death. Look what he says. My desire, the, the real beat of my heart is to desire my, or is to depart and be with Christ. And he tells us why. He says it is far better. Far better. Not, not just a little bit better. Not that it, it, it would have some advantages. It is far better. I remember the first time that I really grasped what Paul was saying here. It was, uh, it was during a moment uh, about four, three years ago or so. I was pastoring, of course, in a, another church, and uh, we had one of our older members dying, and I'd been reflecting on this passage, and of course, I was, I was doing the, the counseling um, in home with this person and, and family as they were dying, but I remember one re- morning, just days before this person died, reading this passage and realizing what Paul was saying, that it is far better when that moment comes. Departure from this life is superior to remaining in this life. Being with Christ, in the presence of Christ, is far better than this life. It's not just that that would be okay if it happened. It's not just that, well, that would be acceptable. It's that it exceeds the experience of this life. For most humans, myself included, death is the scariest thing we can imagine. Someone has said somewhere that what sets us apart as human beings, uh, apart from all the animals and things in nature, is that we have this consciousness of 
death. We recognize our own mortality. We recognize our finite existence, and it haunts us almost on a daily basis. This is the sort of thing we all have to reckon with, and yet it's also that very sort of thing that can easily and understandably drive a person crazy. It's why so many people have gone crazy. Think about this last year and a half. We were faced with a we are faced with a global pandemic. But remember those very uncertain days in March of 2020 when we're told that this has the potential to be the greatest catastrophe we've seen in over 100 years, where we're told that the death rate for this virus could be about 10%. One in 10 people could potentially die. It's something, by the way, that humans have reckoned with for all of human history. But in our modern and safe world, we didn't ever think about this. And yet, now look at where we are. Look at how on edge so many of us are. I don't know about you, but I feel more anxiety today than I felt before March 2020. I feel more fear and more on edge than I felt then. And what I notice in talking to people, and what I notice from interacting with people, and from reading articles from journalists and and sociologists, is that that's absolutely true. Mental health issues are on the rise. People are more anxious than they ever have been before. We're more depressed. And why is it? Because we've had to face that thing that we know is there all along and we don't like to wake up to, and that's our mortality. It's the thing that we basically leave alone until we wake up in the middle of the night and we hear something creaking in the middle of the night and we're wide awake and then we're forced to deal with those dark thoughts. Otherwise, we keep ourselves busy enough to avoid it. Again, it could drive a person crazy. But Paul here tells us how Christians view this matter. Paul tells us the ideal of what it looks like to be a Christian and to be staring death in the face. Some of you may be doing that right now. We're all doing it in some capacity, but some of you might have this on your mind for some reason this morning. So I want you to hear what Paul says. We may enjoy things about this life. We may even have some fears. But nothing can surpass being with Christ. That is far better than anything we could ever hope for or imagine. So if we're thinking about what it means to die, for example. What it means to depart and be with Christ. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of explanation. There's a whole lot of mystery there. But what we can say on the basis of a text like this, or or where Paul talks about this a bit more in 2 Corinthians 5, we can say on the basis of this, and by the way, 2 Corinthians 5 is where he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know those people are present with the Lord, even though they await the final resurrection that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. When Christ returns, the body will be raised. So that's the ultimate Christian hope. But there is intermediate hope. When we die, it is far better, and we are with Christ. But we don't really know what this means other than these couple of cryptic statements. But what we do know is what Paul says here, that that exceeds any earthly joy, that it exceeds any amount of happiness or comfort that we could experience in this world. It is far better to be with Christ. Everything that we love about this life is summed up in Christ. Why? Because he is all in all. 
All things were made through him and by him and for him. In him all things hold together. That is why Paul can say this. And yet, here I am still saying, I find this nearly impossible to accept. Frankly, I don't like what Paul says here. It's overwhelming. And when I think about it too long, it hurts a little bit to think about it. So realize I'm not shaming you with this. As I told you in the beginning, I'm haunted by this passage as much as anyone. And I'm troubled by my weak faith and my doubts and my fears and my inability to say what Paul says here. Because I can't say it in honesty. But I'm convinced that the secret for Paul's language here is his deep communion with Christ. To live is Christ. This doesn't happen overnight. Paul knows the Lord and he walks with the Lord. Again, Philippians 3, we see him talking about pressing on to know the Lord, to to grasp the Lord. He loves the Lord and has a deep intimacy with the Lord. So he can say, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. That only comes from someone who has experienced that knowledge. You can't just say it in theory. It has to come from a place of actually knowing Christ and knowing that being with Christ would be superior. Yet he realizes there is work to be done. So verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So into verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith. In other words, so that you can come along and follow me. So that you can say to live as Christ and to die as gain. Verse 26, the ultimate aim. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Because of my coming to you again. So Paul says, I'm confident that this is going to turn out for good. I'm going to come to you again. I'm going to get out of this prison. And it's not really about me, because if it was my choice, I would go. I would let them kill me. I would depart and be with Christ. But I'm confident of this, that God wants to use this to show you how good he is, so that one day, when it comes your time, you can say, to die is gain. All of this will lead to the glory of Christ Jesus. That's Paul's aim. To live as Christ. And as I said, it's only out of that perspective that life is Christ that someone can say, to die is gain. We all have fears. I've talked about them enough. I've already confessed that I have some severe ones. And we really can't make those fears go away. But what we can do is we can learn from Paul. And when I say that, please understand that I'm not telling you that you just need to buck up and say death is advantageous or even that death is awesome or good. Not at all. I can't say that honestly for myself. And I think that's also jumping ahead of ourselves. And I don't think Paul would say it quite that way anyway. After all, in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about death is the last enemy to be defeated by Christ. He clearly doesn't think death itself is a good thing. Death is an encroachment of sin and Satan on God's good creation. And Christ intends to redeem us from the curse of death. But because he knows that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of death, he can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. So where do we start with this? 
We start by cultivating this deep relationship with Christ. And it won't happen overnight. We spend time communing with Him, relying on Him, seeking Him with every means at our disposal. So that includes things like what we do right now. I was thinking about it as we sing hymns. It's a bit odd that we gather together and sing these hymns, sing these songs. But I want you to understand there's a theology behind that. These are forming you. They are preparing your heart. They are shaping your affections to love and to know Christ. That's what we're doing. We're not just singing songs to fill service space. And that's also why Suzanne does such a great job of this. And Kay and Robin, they all pick out the songs that are richest in Christian truth. Because those are the hymns we need. We don't just need regular old songs to fill the space. We need something that has truth and substance that can root us in this world. It's what we do as we gather here and listen to the preaching of God's Word. It's not really about me or or my cleverness in coming up with a sermon. What's important is that you hear clearly what God has said in Scripture. It's why we have formation components like classes, like Sunday school and Wednesday night where we do the deep dive on a theological topic and why we have this thing coming up in November where we're going to together as a church work on our formation. It's why we're thinking about our children's program and how do we form children early on and then as teenagers, how do we form them to be solid Christian adults? All of this is part of what Paul's talking about here. And it's all part of cultivating a relationship with Christ. The Christian claim is that Christ is alive, which means, by the way, this is the orthodox position here, he is still fully human. Remember, he ascends to heaven. He doesn't somehow drop his body or something like that. So I'm talking about communing with a living person. Paul is talking about communing with a living person who is alive. I'm not even talking here about reading the Bible more or praying more, though all of those, as I just said, are important, necessary, and indispensable in this quest. But the main thing I'm talking about is seeking to commune with the living Christ. Because the key, here's the key to it all. The key is first being able to say, to live is Christ. And only then can we ever utter with any sincerity those words, to die is gain. Let's pray together. At the end of my prayer, I want to invite you to pray as our Lord taught us. So I'll I'll lead us in that. But as I do that, will you join me when we get to that moment? But let me pray uh, the pastoral prayer first. Lord, this is a challenging text. And I imagine so many of us listening this morning find it challenging. We need your grace. We need your grace to see through the fog and to see through the thick and the difficult parts of this world. And to see that there is hope. Lord, I pray that where we're lacking faith, you would increase our faith. That you would help our unbelief. That you would help us to see That in Christ there is this hope of eternal life. And there is this hope of something that is far better than all the things that we love about your creation and love about this world. And I pray that we would be able to see through that and see Christ standing before us. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes to cultivate this vision of seeing you and seeing Christ face to face. I pray that our heart would be captured by that idea. I pray that our minds would be saturated with the notion of seeing and beholding you in Christ Jesus. And I pray that our day-to-day life would be a a life formed by the habits of beholding the living God in Christ Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to do that and to prioritize that and that you would bless any and every effort to that end. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling right now. We have many in our church family who are sick, who are suffering, who are worried, who are fearful, who are dealing with grief. I pray that they would find hope in this text. I pray that they would hear Paul's words and not be haunted by them, but be encouraged by them. I pray for those who are struggling with anxieties in general about life, that they would see Christ as the hope and the only hope that we have in this world, that he truly is all in all, and that all things will be brought into subjection under him. Lord, I pray that we would see him as king this morning. And as a congregation, I pray that you would help us to see the truth of this text, that to live is Christ, and that our purpose is to magnify him. And our purpose is to serve the church and to bring fruitful labor into this church. I pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, I pray against the many things that we are struggling against, whether they're cultural pressures or societal pressures or even those things within our church that Satan will use to destroy it. Lord, I pray that you would have your way here and that you would make yourself known among us, that you would pour out your spirit so that we could walk a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name, the one who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.